invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 20 this morning. We want to look at verses 1 through 16, parable of the vineyard workers. And uh, let's pray together and we'll get into our study. Father, we do thank you for your word now. Pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for us as a people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we note the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. We are still in that section in chapter 17 through 20, the instructions of the King. In Matthew 19, we have a contrast drawn between childlikeness that enters the kingdom and that of the rich young ruler, which does not. In both Matthew 18 and 19, the emphasis is on childlikeness that ultimately will enter the kingdom. In Matthew 18, 3, Jesus said, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 19, 14, Jesus said of little children, Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And in contrast to that, we have the story of the rich young ruler that follows. You see, children are an illustration of dependence upon and submission to authority. Children cannot make their own way, but are totally dependent. Children are not in control, but are under parental authority. Well, in contrast, the rich young ruler thought he could merit eternal life by doing good things and approached Jesus on that basis. And then in response to Jesus' demand that he follow him as Lord, the young man refused to submit to his lordship authority. So the rich young ruler refused to depend upon to depend upon Christ or submit to his lordship authority. These are the issues related to the nature of a true saving faith. Dependence upon Christ as savior and submission to his lordship authority. The main issue in view in presenting the contrast between childlikeness and the rich young ruler is the issue of attaining eternal life. This was the very basis for the rich young ruler coming to Jesus as he came asking, quote, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Well, keep in mind that the subject of eternal life is the central issue throughout this whole section. I mean, this drives the entire narrative. There's other pieces that enter in, but this is the main part of the narrative. Note the emphasis here. As far as the background, verse 16, uh, what shall I do that I may have eternal life? 17, want to enter into life. Verse 23, enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples question, who then can be saved? In the disciples asking who then can be saved, Jesus responded by saying, with men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, this is key in understanding what Jesus is saying in the parable we're about to study this morning. What is impossible with men is possible solely on the basis of God's grace. Yes, Jesus closely connected having eternal life with following him and having treasure in heaven. But we need to understand that following is the fruit of salvation and the basis of rewards, but it's not the means of salvation. That's a critical distinction. 
This must be the case, otherwise it would be possible for a person to save himself by following. But that's not the case. As Jesus said, it is impossible for people to save themselves by anything they do, including following. The order is belief and then follow. We're not saved by following, but we are saved by a belief that then has the fruit of following. Belief is the root Following is the fruit. Note uh, this in John chapter 10. Let's uh, look at this verse here. Where Jesus says, but you do not believe. That's the core issue. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and respond with belief. And I know them, salvation, and they follow me, fruit. And I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Assurance. There you have it. Laid out clearly by Jesus Christ. Well, Peter then asked what was in it for them as disciples, since they had indeed left all and followed Jesus. Jesus promised that indeed they would share in the rebirth of the kingdom when Christ sits on his throne of glory, and that they will sit on 12 thrones governing Israel. Furthermore, Christ in effect promised everyone who makes this lordship commitment, who leaves all to follow him, in this life they will be rewarded 100-fold in the spirit realm, in the here and now. And then in the kingdom age to come, they will inherit eternal life. And that's how the synoptics especially emphasize this. In the here and now, 100-fold, And in the age to come, the kingdom age to come, inherit eternal life. Again, the main thing is receiving eternal life. This is the big idea throughout the whole context. That's where everything ultimately moves. What's the conclusion of the whole matter? And then Christ made the proverbial statement, many who are first will be last and the last first. What Christ meant by this is debated. I read about 25 commentaries in preparation for the message on Sunday morning, and I can tell you it's mixed here as far as how they understand this parable. It's debated. You see, it can have different nuances depending on the context. But here it comes in context with an explanatory parable that emphasizes, you ready for this, pure Grace. In fact, this obscure statement regarding the first and the last brackets the parable on grace. So here's the outline. Here's what we're looking at. Uh, First will be last, last first. End of chapter 19, which should actually probably, this should all be a part of the same chapter here. But anyway, uh, parable on grace then. That's what we're studying this morning, which concludes with last will be first, first will be last. Very same principle that we have stated in 1930, is stated at the end. And in between, we have the parable on grace. Now, the big debate is this. Is this parable in Matthew 20, 1 through 15, describing rewards on the basis of grace? Or is it illustrating salvation itself is by grace? Now, both are true. All is of grace. And as I emphasized earlier, it is true that Christ closely connects following him as indicative of having eternal life and also with having treasure in heaven 
as he said to the rich young ruler. However, the discussion began with the rich young ruler's question about how to have eternal life and concludes with this obscure first and last statement with the promise of inheriting eternal life. Now, if one applies the parable which follows to rewards, then there's a problem because the parable emphasizes no distinction. And elsewhere, the scriptures clearly teach that there will be a distinction in the matter of rewards. We're not all going to sit on the 12 thrones governing the 12 tribes. I mean, that, that's unique to the disciples, the apostles. However, in the matter of salvation, there is total equality with no distinction whatsoever. So I take it that salvation by pure grace is what is being illustrated here in this parable in Matthew 21 through 15, which is in keeping with the flow of the conversation generated by the rich young ruler and Christ's statement that salvation is only possible with God, or in other words, on the basis of God's grace. We proclaim and champion and are willing to die on the hill of the gospel of God's grace. Salvation is all about grace, meaning God's unmerited favor. But interestingly, Jesus himself never actually used the word grace in his teaching ministry. However, he taught it and illustrated it as seen in this parable here in Matthew 20. As I say, grace means favor, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. The emphasis on grace is on what God does for us, not what we do for God. Human thinking likes to say God helps those who help themselves, right? I mean, the world all knows that's gospel truth. Just one problem, it's not. That's not grace. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's grace. I mean, we couldn't reach up to God, so God in grace reached down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, grace is contrasted with works. For example, here, Romans chapter 11, verse 6, and if by grace it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. It can't be both. Either we are saved by grace or we are saved by works. Grace allows no works whatsoever, or it's not grace. Grace, in order to be grace, must be pure grace. You say, well, I think it's a combination. No, then you don't have grace. Thus, grace and works are mutually exclusive. We are saved by pure grace, no mixture. Also note that in Scripture... Faith is contrasted with works. Faith is shown to be non-meritorious as a spiritual reality that relates to the heart. And as such, faith is not in conflict with grace, but according to it. Notice what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We're all children of the faith. The kind of faith that Abraham had. Same kind of faith. And then, of course, we know this ver these verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, by grace, 
You've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By the way, if anyone thinks that the necessity of recognizing Christ as Lord, as emphasized to the rich young ruler, is contrary to grace, then they should read on and study this parable here in Matthew 21 through 15. Recognizing Christ as Lord over all is not inconsistent with grace, but rather harmonizes with saving faith that is in keeping with grace. It is the grace of God that brings us to the point of dependence upon Christ and recognition of his sovereign lordship authority. As Paul says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You don't arrive there on your own. By grace, we as believers have received Christ Jesus as Lord. As Paul says in Colossians 2.6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We receive him as Lord and Savior by faith, and then we are to walk accordingly. The great challenge of sanctification is to be consistent with the faith we have come to know. This is the whole issue in growth and maturity. Well, let's pick up the parable. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The word for shows that the thought began in 1930, now continues on into chapter 20. This is another reminder, by the way, that the chapter divisions are not inspired. They help us to get around in our Bibles, but they're not always contextually appropriate or accurate. The word for shows that Christ is here explaining the meaning of the obscure phrase concerning the last and the first at the end of chapter 19. Now, when Christ says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's making a comparison. And this phraseology is consistent language that Christ uses when he wants to illustrate some truth related to the kingdom. And in this case, the whole surrounding context is especially emphasizing entrance into the kingdom is on the basis of grace, what only God can do. This is the same subject Christ was dealing with in regard to the rich young ruler who approached him with the question of how to receive eternal life. When Christ presented to him the condition of exchanging the lordship of his riches with following him as Lord, the young man went away sorrowful because he was not willing to give up his riches for the lordship of Christ. Well, here's what Jesus said in response. 1923, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The issue is entrance into the kingdom. And Jesus went on to say, this is only possible with God. And this parable now builds on that reality, showing it's only made possible on the basis of grace. God's grace makes it possible. The landowner in this parable is God himself. And the workers are believers in Christ, who are all saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now, the assumption in Christ's teaching is that being a follower of Christ, which is indicative of true faith, is then demonstrated in being a worker for Christ. So following is basically equivalent to serving or working, which is the fruit of true faith. Notice uh, 
we see this pattern in the scriptures. Christ says in John 12, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the subject again is eternal life. And he goes on to say, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. There's an assumption that if you're a true believer, you will be a true follower. We saw the same thing in John chapter 10. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, 22, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, we now belong to him, he bought us, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So having eternal life and bearing fruit go together. Again, we're not saved by bearing fruit. But if we have eternal life, the expectation is that we will show fruit. So faith and fruit are distinct and yet closely linked. John Calvin said, Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Or as Luther says, it does not remain alone. Verse 2, Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now a denarius was a normal day's wage during the time of Christ. Remember, this is a parable, and that parables generally have one main point of application, which in this case will be made at the conclusion of the parable. These were hired early in the morning, probably about 6 a.m. You want to get started early. Verse 3, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. The third hour, according to Jewish reckoning, corresponds to what is 9 a.m. on our clock. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. Still more were hired at sixth, which is noon. And then still more at the ninth, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go. You you also go into the vineyard. And whatever's right, you will receive. The 11th hour is 5 p.m. Quitting time is 6. Hey, you're a late sleeper. This is for you. This is very late in the day to go to work. I mean, if quitting time was 6 p.m., it means that they put in about one hour's worth of work. That's a short work day for sure. But they too were hired to go into the vineyard. Verse 8. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers, give them their wages. Beginning with the last to the first. So the day's work was over. And so it was now time to pay the workers. And the instruction was to pay those hired last and then work up towards those who were hired first. Ed Glasscock says, the wage implying only one wage is singular. The point is that only one amount was to be paid. Payment would be not on a scale based on the number of hours worked. Note the wording here in verse 8, last to first. This ties back to 1930, where Christ said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. 
And what we find again at the conclusion of the parable in 2016, where it says, the last will be first and the first last. Now, undeniably, what is being described is total equality. As all receive the very same thing, whether they be first or last. Verse 9, and when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received denarius. Wow, a full day's pay for an hour's worth of work. I like this job. I'll be back tomorrow. This probably raised some eyebrows because those hired at the 11th hour received a full day's wage. The same amount that those who were hired early in the morning had agreed to work all day to receive. So far, so good. I mean, this landowner is now seen to be a very generous person in paying those who work for just one hour the equivalent of an entire day's wage. Now, the other guys who worked all day are, of course, thinking that if the landowner is this exorbitantly generous with those who work for just one hour, just think what he is undoubtedly going to do for us who have worked the whole day. I mean, if they were paid proportionately to this, it would mean that he would pay them 12 days worth of wages for just one day of work. You like a job like that. I mean, if you get a full day's pay for one hour of work, then 12 hours of work would mean you would get paid the equivalent of 12 days worth of wages. That would be consistent, right? You do the math. These guys are all doing the math. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's consistent. And that's what they were expecting. Verse 10. But... When the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And likewise, received each a denarius. Of course, these earlier laborers, based on what they had seen, assumed they would receive a much higher wage than they had agreed upon. Since those coming so late in the day had also received the full day's wage of a denarius. But alas... They too, likewise, received just a single denarius. In other words, at the end of the day, they all had an equal standing in terms of what they received. No distinction. Verse 11. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men who have worked only one hour, you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Of course, according to human thinking, this just wasn't right. I mean, those who had worked only one hour received the same amount as those who had worked all the day long. Take that to the union, see what they do with it. Note the phrase, you have made them equal to us. This is the key idea. The word complain means to grumble or complain. Ed Glasscock says, Humanly speaking, they had every right to complain. Undoubtedly, no one reading this today would tolerate such treatment. Lawsuits, union strikes, and every kind of action to receive fair treatment would be initiated. I mean, you can almost hear the howl, can't you? That's not fair. And cries of injustice. Let's start a revolution. But of course, of course, grace is not fair. It bestows 
extravagant, undeserved favor upon the unworthy recipient. How's that for a radical idea? You like it? You should. What is being described has been called the scandal of grace. Grace is not fair. It gives unmerited favor. Grace makes everyone equal to everyone else. No one is in a superior position. Verse 13, but he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Landowner did nothing wrong. He paid the initial workers what he had promised. A denarius. They weren't slighted. The problem was not the amount they got paid, but rather they were envious of the good fortune of those who were hired at the last hour and were disgruntled over it. So he says to them, verse 14, take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give, I wish to give, I wish to give this last man the same as to you. This is an illustration of grace. Note the language, the same as you. All the way through, there is this emphasis on total equality. Note, note the emphasis. Verse 9, each received a denarius. Likewise received each a denarius. Twelve made them equal to us. Verse 14, the last man the same as you. All the way through. In the parable, the issue here is not on how hard they worked or even the quality of their work. That's not the emphasis in the parable. It's strictly on the length of their service. Some served all day, some part of the day, and some only one hour. They all put some time in, but they all received the very same amount of compensation. You say, well, how can that possibly be right? Well, according to grace, it's perfectly right, which is a point of emphasis being made in the parable. Remember, we had that saying that pops up here, verse 4, whatever is right, I will give you. Verse 7, whatever is right, you will receive. You see, sin is the great equalizer that results in the wages of sin being death for every person. There are no exceptions. In the matter of death, we're all equal. Likewise, grace is the great equalizer that makes every believer equally acceptable before God. We all stand on equal footing before the cross. In the matter of grace, we're all equal. According to grace, this equality in Christ is perfectly right. Because none of us deserve any good thing at all. If you want what you deserve, well, then you should go straight to hell. I don't know about you, but, but I, I'm, really, I'm really going on the grace plan. I'm really all about the grace plan. I, I, I don't want justice. Justice, that's what the world calls Justice. You really want justice? Bam. You got it. You're done. You just went straight to hell. We don't want justice. We want grace. Romans 3, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction, 
by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. He's right. How did he do it? That he being just, right, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, in the cross, justice was served. So that grace might be bestowed. In this action, God is both just, right, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is just. This is what is right on the basis of grace. Verse 15, the parable continues. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? If God wants to dish out special grace, it's his prerogative to do so. It's lawful, it's right for him to dispense his grace as he wishes. After all, it's his grace to do as he pleases. And grace is always unfair. It's always scandalous in that sense. And praise God it is, otherwise we would have no hope. Our only hope is grace. Pure grace. We don't, what, we don't want what we have coming. We all want the unfairness, so to speak, of grace. How wrong to have an evil eye because of the grace that is bestowed on someone else. Rather, we should rejoice that as believers, we're all trophies of grace. No matter when we got saved, whether it be early in life or on our deathbed. In our human evilness, we like to get ahead of others. I mean, we want to be the king of the mountain. And we're envious when others seem to get the better deal. The disciples, for example, argued over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and who would sit in the most favored positions. Everything's a competition. But in the goodness of God, in his saving grace and salvation, we are all placed on the very same level. And that is the major point of the parable, as Jesus makes clear in his concluding applicational statement in verse 16. Notice what he says, verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Now note that last phrase, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. That's not in the older manuscripts, not here. It's found in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, and many think it was borrowed by a scribe and inserted here. But it's, uh, it's not in the older manuscripts. So it's biblical, but just not sure it belongs right here. Verse 16 is key to interpreting the parable. The parable concludes with a summary application here in verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. Now, if the last will be made first and the first will be made last, that means they all end up at the same place, which is the overall point of the parable. What is presented here is a dead heat of total equality. This is not a parable about personal rewards. But about salvation, personal rewards are another issue. In view here is the common salvation that all believers equally share in. Now certainly there is application of grace truth to the issue of rewards in the sense of opportunity to serve. And some think that is the point here. 
For example, the thief on the cross had a very limited amount of time to serve in comparison to the person who serves for their full life. But according to grace, he may be rewarded fully according to the opportunity afforded. I mean, he was a testimony to the other thief, which will be rewarded for all eternity, all out of proportion to the time he had to serve. Thus, his reward will be commensurate with grace and not time served. So there is a point of application in this regard. However, again, I believe the main emphasis in the surrounding context is the issue of eternal life itself. And the major thrust of the parable is exact equality which is in keeping with the main theme of salvation. Now, the balance of Scripture emphasizes emphasizes a difference in personal rewards and not exact sameness. Uh, For example, 1 Corinthians 3, 14, 15, If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, there's no other foundation that anyone can build on except Christ, and then he says, If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is a believer's judgment, not for the penalty of sin that's been paid for, but the issue of rewards. Uh, That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. I mean, there's personal accountability. And then here in 2 John, Verse 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for. We're working for this. Rewards. But that we may receive a full reward. And then Jesus, in the book of Revelation, 3.11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast. Hold it fast. Don't let go. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. Reward. At the end of the book, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. All of this emphasizes that not all will receive the same reward, but rather each one according to the quality of their service. So my view is that the parable in Matthew 20, 1 through 15, which emphasizes that all get the very same thing, is emphasizing that all will share in the same salvation, not in the same personal reward. This is in keeping with the main thrust of the surrounding context in which the main issue in the age to come is made to be the issue of eternal life. Thus, the converted thief on the cross will enjoy the full blessing of salvation just as much as those who serve Christ for essentially their whole life. As God's children, whether saved early or saved late, we are all equally saved. Saving grace is equal for all. All God's children will have a room in Father's house. Every believer belongs totally to Christ and is in the position where Christ is all and in all. Every believer is an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ. Every believer has part in the promise that Christ has delivered, that Christ was delivered up for us all, and that in Christ we are freely given all things, Romans 8, 32. All believers, according to Revelation 21, 7, shall inherit all things. And God will be his God, and and he shall be God's child. Every believer equally shares in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. All believers are part of the same body. All share in the same spirit. All have the same hope of our calling. All have one Lord, one faith, one spiritual baptism, 
And we all have the same one God and Father of all. Every believer is a recipient of God's grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. All believers alike, when we see Christ, will be like him. All believers will fully enjoy the splendor of glory. All believers will know the truth of God wiping away our tears. All will know the glory of no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. Every believer, whether mature or immature, whether vigilant or negligent, or to put it as Paul says, whether we wake or sleep, which is to say whether we are spiritually alert or spiritually lethargic, all are going to share fully in the inheritance of eternal life. We're all going to arrive at the same place with the same status regarding eternal life. And behind it all is the grace of God for all believers. John MacArthur says, Believing tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals, and social outcasts will have the same heavenly residence as Paul or any other saint. There are no servant headquarters or lower class neighborhoods in heaven. Recently, I was talking to an unbeliever. And he said he just couldn't understand how it could be that a person who lived a notorious life could that in the end, in the end, be completely forgiven and have every much of the good of heaven as anyone else. Now, it is true. It is true that grace makes no sense to natural thinking. You see, God's ways are not our ways. They're all out of proportion to our natural, normal way of thinking. But it's gloriously good. It's gloriously good. You know that verse, we know God's ways are not our ways. But what's the context here in in Isaiah? Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. God abundantly pardoning is contrary to natural thinking. Purgatory makes sense. Oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. It really does to natural thinking. I mean, but it's contrary to grace. God's thinking, God's ways are infinitely superior to our natural thoughts. We don't think this way. God's grace ways are incalculably higher than our ways. The grace standard is seen in the converted thief on the cross who just moments earlier in the day was mocking Christ along with the other thief. I mean, they were both going at Christ. But then, then he repented and turned to Christ and asked the Christ in his lordship authority to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Instant forgiveness. Instantly, he became a child of God. Instantly, Christ said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That very day, he would fully share in paradise with Christ. Christ didn't say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to, you'll be there, but it's going to be in a lower chamber. No, 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 no. Did he deserve this? To share in paradise that very day? To share in paradise with Christ for all eternity? No, 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 not fair! 
this was grace, pure grace. The point is this, whether a person gets saved early in life and is enrolled to service to Christ for their whole life, or whether they get saved very late and have virtually no time for service like the thief on the cross, yet all equally share in the inheritance of eternal life. By the way, God is still using the testimony of that converted thief right down to this very day. You talk about lasting fruit. Grace gives out of all proportion to what is deserved. And that's true for all of us. We are simply trophies of grace. So why compare? You know, comparison is not a grace concept. Eh, A little better. Eh, Yeah, 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 I'm better. What? What did Paul say to the Corinthians? Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, what do you boast? What are you bragging about? As if you had not received it. There's no place for a holier-than-thou attitude because all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. That's true for all of us. Saving grace is all-encompassing. For all God's children, none of us are self-made people. Just like little children, we are all totally dependent. No one comes to Christ with more or less merit. We all have none. No one is received by Christ on the basis of more or less grace. We as God's children all equally receive the same saving grace. Note the radical language in verse 16 that the last will be first, and the first will be last. These people got their their mouths wide open. What? You're kidding me. This is radical grace. Note in 2016, it is stated in reverse form, in reverse order, from the statement in 1930. So you see this? states it this way. Many are first, will be last, the last first. But here... The the order is reversed. The last will be first, and the first last. Christ changes the order to where the emphasis on who is first and who is last essentially blurs together, almost as to emphasize that in the kingdom, first and last won't matter. Because we will all equally share in kingdom glory and the blessedness of eternal life. Grace is not about finishing first or finishing last. It is the reality that purely by the grace of God, I'm going to be there. In heaven, there will be no scorecards. How'd you you do? Uh, No, there'll be no scorecards about who is the most deserving of God's grace because no one deserves it. And yet all believers are the recipients of it. With men, this is impossible. But with God, with God, all things are possible. Even having the first finish last and the last finish first in a dead heat because it's a grace heat. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Ah, the glory of grace 
where those who get in first and those who get in last will all be equally represented there for all eternity. Chuck Swindoll writes in his book, The Grace Awakening, one of my greatest anticipations is some glorious day being in a place where there'll be no boasting, no name dropping, no selfishness. Guess where it will be? Heaven. There will be no spiritual sounding testimonies that call attention to somebody's super colossal achievements. None of that. Everybody will have written across his or her life the word grace. When I was in seminary, he says, one fellow who struggled with academics, I mean really struggled, was grateful just to get through school. He would open his box, pull out the test booklet, and before he ever looked at his grade, he wrote in big, bold letters across the front of the test, G-R-A-C-E. If he did poorly, grace. If he did well, grace. I learned a valuable lesson from my friend. That's all any of us have to claim. Grace. In the final analysis, it's all of grace. And all the glory belongs to God alone. Indeed, the last will be first. And the first will be last. And as Paul so aptly said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is what we are as God's children, simply trophies of God's grace and nothing more. Praise God for his amazing grace. Shall we sing it together? Let's stand and sing.